Good time. All right, well, let me say, uh, for the benefit of the recording this morning, we don't normally record our adult equipped classes, but we are doing so this morning uh, because we won't be having a, a sermon recording. Since we're having a joint service with Northwest Baptist, we won't have our recording equipment. And so in lieu of the sermon we usually post online, we're going to go ahead and post this adult equipped class. And we um, especially wanted to do so because the subject matter, I think, is just so important and um, so relevant for Christians and for non-Christians. So this, uh, for the benefit of the recording, is our adult equipped class, and, um, and uh, this is what we'll be posting online this week in lieu of uh, a sermon. So the question we're asking today is this, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? That may seem like a really uh, elementary question, and maybe if we asked that question 20 or 30 years ago, we would have all had a ready answer to that question, but it is surprising if you asked that question maybe in a room of college freshmen uh, or uh, even in some churches today, uh, you would get a variety of answers. And uh, indeed, the scriptures, though there is one central message I think the Bible wants to convey, sometimes it is conveyed with different language depending on the writer and depending on the context. So here's how I wanted to start this morning to sort of illustrate this point. Uh, Describe for me the gospel in one word. If you could use only one word to capture the gospel message, what word would you use? Jesus. Mike says Jesus. Hard to do better than that, right? Anyone else? Any other words you might use? Redemption. Redemption. Okay. What else? Well, we could just go with those. Jesus, redemption, go God, salvation. You know, those are words we might use. Now, let me ask somebody, go ahead and describe for me the gospel in a sentence. And not one of these big run-on sentences that's like 300 words. Well, like 50 words or less. A simple sentence describing the gospel message. We're not testing you or quizzing you. How would you describe the gospel in one sentence? God saving sinners. God saving sinners. Sure. First Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's great. How about one more? God reconciling sinners to himself. Kurt says, God reconciling sinners to himself. That's excellent. So... I know a pastor who uh, has a group of interns uh, at his church, and he does this sort of exercise with them. Every, every new group of interns, they will first describe the gospel in one word, and then maybe five words, and then a full sentence, then they have to do it in a paragraph, then they have to do it in a, a full paper. And uh, the, the idea is to illustrate the point that the gospel can be conveyed in a number of different ways, with a greater measure of detail, with a greater measure of simplicity, depending on the context and the format, how much space you have. And so um, I think we see this in the Bible as well, that there are some ways to convey the scriptures in a really concise and sort of quick sort of way. And then we have sort of longer expositions of what the gospel is uh, as well. So we're going to see how the Bible does this uh, this morning. So what is the gospel? I want to share, first of all, a few preliminary thoughts, and this is on the handout uh, that you have this morning. Fundamentally, the gospel is, first of all, news. The gospel is news. It's a message. Uh, It's information. It's something 
uh, that has happened. It's actual historical fact. There are events to report, historical events that apparently have some sort of bearing on us. So maybe you've heard that quote that's often attributed to Francis of Assisi. I think we've mentioned it before. That uh, it goes something like, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Um, Francis of Assisi almost certainly did not say that. But um, nonetheless, it's, it's a, really a nonsensical statement. Uh, and that's like saying to a news anchor, hey, report the 6 o'clock news, if necessary, use words. Uh, you simply can't do it, okay? The gospel is a message. It has to be conveyed in propositional truth statements about God, about man, about Christ, about uh, salvation. So first of all, the gospel is news. We miss the gospel entirely if we don't understand that it's a message. It's news to be reported. Second of all, the gospel is good news. Uh, The gospel comes to us in a certain tone of voice. comes with exclamation points. It's glad tidings. It's good news of great joy. It can also be dangerous news if rejected. But nonetheless, the gospel is this wonderful, glorious, joy-filled announcement of what God has done in Christ. It's good news. Thirdly, you've seen the gospel's news, it's good news. I have here that the gospel is specific good news. Uh, so so in, in some um, uh, uh, Christian subcultures, the word gospel is often used as an adjective or used to describe really anything that's, that's really, really good and really, really great. Um, but the gospel itself in the scriptures is something very specific. It's not just everything good the Bible has to say. I mean, it's very specific good news. Uh, it is a thing, and it's not everything in the Bible. The gospel is actually something very, very specific. It's a very specific message about God and about the work of redemption. Okay, so now fourthly and finally, putting it all together, the gospel is specific good news about what God has done in Christ, in his incarnation, death, and resurrection, to provide a way of salvation for sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. Let me say that again. The gospel is specific good news about what God has done in Christ, in his incarnation, death, and resurrection, to provide a way of salvation for sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. A few things to observe about this definition. The gospel is a message about, first of all, what God has done. It's not about what we do to earn God's favor. Uh, it's about what God has done in history. It's about divine action. It's something that we respond to. But we are actually, we don't have any part to play in the gospel message itself. It's about the unilateral action of God and what he has done in time and space in history. Second of all, it's about what God has done in Christ. Uh, Christ is the focal point of the gospel message. Uh, God has taken initiative and the central player in this redemptive plan and this gospel message is the Lord Jesus Christ. There are certain actions and things that Christ himself does. He's the center of the gospel message. It's what God has done in Christ to provide a way of salvation for sinners. What is it that God is doing through Christ? I mean, he's doing lots of things. But the main thing, the gospel thing, is that he's providing a way of salvation for sinners, filling it out, who come to him in repentance and faith. Don't miss this. It's the unilateral action of God. I think we mess this up and we start putting ourselves into the gospel message. It's about what God has done in Christ to prepare a way of salvation for sinners like us. So we're going to look more carefully at this message from Scripture in a few moments, but at this point I need to make an important distinction. 
we need to recognize there is a difference between the gospel itself, that message about what God has done in Christ, and what we might call the implications of the gospel. Or as D.A. Carson puts it, the entailments of the gospel. And this is so crucial. I mean, that might be just really one-on-one kind of stuff for you. Um, but for many, we really get off, um, get off the rails here. So let me put this up on the board. Gospel does not equal the implications. Um, so some implications of the gospel, right? The gospel message is this historical message about what God has done in Christ to provide a way of salvation for sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. But there are implications that flow out of that. I mean, are there implications, for example, for uh, social justice? Okay, how we uh, uh, treat the poor and the oppressed? Well, certainly. I mean, the gospel certainly has implications for how Christians behave toward those who are poor and oppressed. Does the gospel have implications for how we organize discipleship in the church? Certainly. Does the gospel have implications for marriage? These are all the entailments of the gospel, implications of the gospel. Implications for ethnic justice, racial justice. Well, certainly there are implications. But those things themselves are not the gospel. The gospel comes to bear on those questions, those issues, and they're really important issues, but they're not the gospel. And so when you see a, a, a book that's titled um, uh, sort of like The Hole in Our Gospel, um, What God Expects of Us, you know, which is a popular book on, I think, social justice and uh, feeding the hungry and things like that. I think that gets it backwards. Because if we're putting in what God expects of us, entailments, into the gospel itself, all of a sudden the gospel is not entirely about what God has done in Christ. It's about what God has done in Christ and what we have to do to live consistently with the gospel. All of a sudden, our conduct and our works are being imported into the gospel. Well, that in no way denigrates the importance of, again, something like social justice or how we address issues of Christian discipleship. Those are crucial questions, but they're not the gospel. And we can really go wrong if we start saying certain things are gospel issues that really aren't. Baptism, your particular view of baptism, is not a gospel issue. It's a tremendously important issue, but it's not a gospel issue. You know, how you uh, parent your children is tremendously important. It's not a gospel issue. The gospel will come to bear on how you parent your kids. But it is not uh, included in the gospel message itself. So some of our men in a month or so are going to go to the Together for the Gospel conference in Louisville, Kentucky. Together for the gospel. And Mark Dever, one of the organizers of that conference, says the same thing almost every year when he opens the conference. He goes out of his way to say, these speakers up here on the platform, and among you who are out there, you 10,000 or so individuals here, uh, there are lots of things we're not together on. And he'll just say, we're not together on baptism. There are uh, Presbyterians and Baptists at the conference. We're not together on church polity. We're not together on particular worship styles. If you go to each of those men's churches, you're going to see worship expressed in different ways. He says, but we are together for the gospel. That is that message about what God has done in Christ to prepare a way of salvation for sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. And that's the grounds of the conference. If you're together for that message, we may disagree on some of the implications and how to work those things out, uh, what the entailments themselves are and how to work through them, but we are together for the gospel. So this class is about specifically the gospel uh, and its message according to the Bible.
So let's look at uh, the biblical gospel. We want to look at a few texts together. We'll go ahead and pause at this point and uh, ask, do you have any questions so far? Questions or comments on what we've covered so far? Okay, great. Let me mention a few brief texts to you. Uh, So if you are uh, an evangelist trying to uh, communicate the gospel to people in your life, uh, here are a few sort of short texts that very quickly, very briefly get at the gospel message. Don't say everything about the gospel, but capture it in a nutshell. Uh, So short text would be a text like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What God has done in Christ, God so loved the world that he gave his son to prepare a way of salvation so that you won't perish. And then talks about coming and repentance and faith. Whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. John 20 verse 31 uh, John says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And then you have verse 31, which is sort of the purpose statement of John's gospel. But these are written, that is, everything recorded up to this point in the gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Can someone be genuinely converted by believing the message of John twenty thirty-one? Do they need more information? Or we could say, uh, uh, can someone be saved by believing the message of John 3.16? Assuming they have the context, they know who this God is and who Jesus is. Can someone be saved by believing the message of John 3.16? Or do they need more detail, more information? I'm sorry? Yes, Christian says yes. Someone can be saved by believing John 3.16. I think that's exactly right. Nothing said yet in the scriptures up to this point about justification by faith. Nothing's been said about adoption. Well, kind of, in John 1. But uh, not much has been said about the categories of redemption and propitiation. But the simple gospel message is communicated in John 3.16. It's going to be fleshed out in greater detail in other passages. Certainly if you read the whole gospel of John, you're going to get some of that stuff. But the gospel in a nutshell is contained in John 3.16, John 20.31, and we should maintain that. I mean, it's important that we understand that. We mentioned 1 Timothy 1.15 a little bit earlier. Saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. Very simple, concise gospel message. Now, if you have time, if you have room to say more than that, I hope that you do. But basically, the gospel message is contained there in short order, in concise form. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you have more time, you might explain who the Christ is according to the Old Testament. Uh, You might explain what it means that he came into the world. It means that God, the Father, sent him into the world, born of a virgin, etc., etc. If if you're talking about him saving sinners, you might explain the means by which he did that. He went to the cross and died for the sins of his people and then rose again, triumphing over sin and death. But the kernel of the gospel is contained in 1 Timothy 1.15. But then you have longer, more substantial summaries of the gospel. And there are three passages this morning I want to turn us to. They're contained in your handout. At least the references are. But if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. If, if you're trying to discover what is the basic gospel message, you really can't do better than... There's four passages listed in the handout. Only three that we'll look at this morning because two are very similar. Can't do much better than Luke 24, 1 Corinthians 15, 
and Acts either 2 or 13. Uh, Acts 2 is a sermon by Peter. Acts 13 is a sermon by Paul. Uh, uh, I would say that Paul might be plagiarizing Peter's sermon, but they're both plagiarizing Jesus' sermon, so it's a moot point. But there's so much similarity between the two. I'm going to have us look at Acts 13 this morning, but we could have just as easily looked at Acts 2. But I think these are, if you're looking for three go-to passages to explain the basic message of the gospel to an inquirer, someone who's seeking, someone who wants to know uh, what the gospel message is, I really think these are good texts to have in your back pocket. So let's look first at Luke 24, verses 44 through 48. This is at the end of Jesus' ministry. He's risen from the dead already. chapter is coming to a close. I mean, the book is coming to a close. And Jesus says this. Then he said to them, verse 44 of chapter 24, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I try to pray that almost every Sunday morning. And I think it's a good prayer to pray in the moments before the service starts. Lord, open my mind to understand the scriptures. Verse 46, And said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So let's ask this question. What are the major elements of the gospel contained in Luke 24, verses 44 through 48? So I'll just throw one out there for you just to get us going. That the Christ died. Okay? Jesus died. That's one of the elements of the gospel. What are some other elements of the basic gospel message that we see there in Luke 24? 44 through 48. That he's risen. Right. What else? That it ought to be heralded, preached, yeah. That's that idea of good news. Herald good news. Uh, uh, I grew up in Miami. The newspaper was Miami Herald. Heralding the news. You herald news, yeah. That he gives both repentance and faith. Yes. Yes. It's said in Acts chapter 5, and I believe in <clears throat> Acts chapter 10. Yes, yes. The, the gospel does not include, so for example, the gospel is not repent and believe, or do this. But, but the gospel does include that, that call, that gospel call. I mean, you haven't really preached the gospel unless you've included this idea that, and you, the gospel calls you to respond joyfully, happily, wonderfully. It's all good news. This isn't browbeating people, but there is this call, come, repent, believe, and embrace Christ. What else? Any other elements we see in Luke 24, 44 through 48? It's for all nations. Yeah, for all nations, absolutely. There's a universal component to it. This forgiveness is in him. Yes, forgiveness is in Christ. He's the central agent. He's the one we come to and find forgiveness in. Anything else? He's the one that He's the one that fulfills scripture. That's a big one. And that's one we often forget. It's that all these things happen in fulfillment of what the Old Testament said. Okay? Uh, I, I, I can't remember the professor that, that first said this. I've heard it repeated a few times now. But um, to, to many in the, the early centuries following Christ's death, it wouldn't necessarily have been something amazing that someone had risen from the dead. People had heard all sorts of crazy stories you don't have iPhones back then to record things that go on. We've heard of resurrections before. Nothing spectacular necessarily about that. 
what seems to be a big point of emphasis for Jesus himself and certainly for the apostles in the book of Acts is that all these things happen in fulfillment of the scriptures. They happen just as the Old Testament scriptures said they would happen, in some cases hundreds, in some cases more than a thousand years prior. Happening in fulfillment of the scriptures. It's interesting, it, it could have been easily verified that Jesus came from the line of David. We have that promise in 2 Samuel 7, that this son of David is going to come and sit on the throne forever. And the Psalms are filled with material about that. And the prophets are filled with material about this coming son of God, this coming Christ, who's going to reign on the throne forever. And the genealogies, Gospels are front-loaded with those genealogies that talk about Jesus connecting this to David. There's no way today to verify the Jews, you know, those unbelieving Jews, have no way of verifying who the seed of David is anymore. But we know that Jesus Christ uh, of Nazareth was from the line of David. That is well verified and could have been verified in those days. All these things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures. Okay, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. And this is probably the most well-known presentation of the gospel. Really, um, very full presentation of the elements of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, we're just going to read verses 1 through 8. I would say if, if I could only go to one text to explain the gospel to somebody, this is probably where I would go. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. You hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So very quickly here, we don't mind the repetition. What are the elements of the gospel that are contained in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8? We can repeat what's already been said and anything new that we want to add. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for sinners. The death of Christ is, is, is one of the most crucial elements of the gospel message. What else? Fulfillment. Fulfillment. Yeah, you have that twice, actually. Uh, that he uh, died for our sins according with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And uh, the book of Acts demonstrates in great detail, we're going to see this in one passage in Acts 13 in a second, exactly how that was according to the scriptures. What else? Other elements of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15? Resurrection. Resurrection, absolutely. Got to have the resurrection in there. All right, now let's move on to Acts 13. I know we didn't observe everything there, but let's go ahead and go to Acts 13. I'm going to read a slightly longer portion, verses 16 through 39. Now you know I'm going to ask the question, what are the elements of the gospel contained in Acts chapter 13, 16 through 39? Now here's a bit of a fuller presentation, kind of a snapshot of a whole sermon uh, that is preached on the gospel. Let's read together Acts 13, verse 16 through 39. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. 
And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. And they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offering, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John, the Apostle John, excuse me, John the Baptist, excuse me, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. To us has been sent the gospel, the message of this salvation. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. That's an interesting idea. Those who didn't understand the prophets fulfilled the prophets' prophecies by condemning the Christ. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. What God has done in Christ. Verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, literally the gospel, that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, so also it is written in the second psalm. So here we have fulfillment. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Then Paul breaks in. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. I think that's Psalm 16. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So it couldn't have applied to David. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So here we have, in a little more detail, the gospel message. What are the elements of the gospel message contained in Acts chapter 13? And repetition is fine. But see, I thought these would get easier as we went on. Ben. Um, you have a prophecy of the king. You have the king. Yeah, yeah. That idea, it's according to the scriptures. Okay. Yeah. What else? Verse 30, he was raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. Resurrection is contained. It's been contained in every single one of these passages. That's exactly right. What else? Forgiveness in him again. Forgiveness in him again. Absolutely. It's proclaimed to you. I think you saw this in the Corinthian passage and this passage, but that there's validity to the testimony mm. here to witnesses. Yes, yes, witnesses. It's been uh, there are people who are testifying to it, 
And that gets at the idea, and that's just assumed in the title, Good News. They know the news. It's been shown to them. It's been demonstrated. They've seen it, and now they are conveying the news. Yes, Mike? Salvation is in him alone. Yes. Um, he distinguishes Jesus from his predecessors, David in particular. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very good. And certainly more information given about the background of the gospel. talks about Moses. He refers to them as sons of Abraham. He's trying to fill their minds with some of the Old Testament scriptures and to demonstrate exactly how it is that the Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. So kind of a putting it all together sort of question. Let's list the crucial elements of the gospel message. We have, in all of these passages, God's initiative. Remember, the gospel is about what God has done in Christ. As soon as we start talking about what we do to respond, we're missing the gospel. It's the unilateral action of God. Okay, God's initiative, I think, it's at least assumed, if not expressly stated in all of these passages, we have the incarnation. That the Son of God came into the world. He was born. Okay? We have the idea that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Christ. Now that's packed with Old Testament uh, uh, um, backstory. Everyone in Israel in those days was waiting for this coming one, the Christ, the Messiah, same, same word more or less, the anointed one. This person was going to be the son of David, the promised king to reign on the throne forever. He was going to be the servant of Isaiah 53. He was going to be that prophet who was promised to Israel. Uh, Moses, it was said to them in Deuteronomy, the text escapes me now, that uh, uh, one who is greater than Moses going to come, a prophet's going to be raised up from among Israel who's greater than Moses, maybe Deuteronomy 18, I think. We have death. I'm not going to write all this out, but according to the scriptures, we have resurrection. According to the scriptures, and then what I'm calling the summons. It's important to say this. The gospel itself is not <laughs> that you have repented and believed. It doesn't assume a response. It is a summons to respond. So if in a membership interview, as we always do, I ask the question, what is the gospel? And someone says, I repented and believed. That's not the gospel. Remember, the gospel is about the unilateral action of God. What God has done in Christ. And implicit in that, or actually expressly stated in that message, as we've seen, I think, in every one of these passages, Luke 24, 1 Corinthians 15, Acts 13, there's this summons. Now you have to come to him and repent and believe. He calls you. It's this, it's this invitation, this gospel call. Any, what do you all think of this framework? Any other elements that you think would necessarily have to be contained in the message of the gospel? Kurt? I'm just wondering, um, as we've read, if there's anything in there about... Um the sinless life of Christ, like Second Corinthians five twenty one says, mm-hmm. you know, He became sin who knew no sin, that we mm-hmm. might become mm-hmm. the righteousness of yeah, God. Absolutely. And I was trying to. <clears throat> I mean, I think it's implied, but I don't know if it's specifically stated in yeah. these passages. Yeah. So let me say this. This is actually in my notes. Um, <coughs> I think uh, there has risen a tradition among Protestants that may not be the best. Um, 
Let me put it another way. The Bible does not emphasize in, in the gospel message the sinless life of Christ. It comes up, certainly he was sinless, and it's terribly important that he was sinless. But it, it's not where we need, it's not where the scriptures put the emphasis. And I like the way Miss Joyce said it in her explanation earlier in the class, incarnation, death, resurrection. Those three things are what the Bible wants to emphasize. There's tremendous theological import to all of those points. Certainly Christ was sinless, not denying that. Not saying it doesn't have tremendous ramifications. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Could be Jesus' blood and sinlessness. You know? Um, Actually, it, it couldn't be, but that's a subject for another class, okay? Te- technically, it couldn't be that. I'll leave it to the hymn writer. you got it right, okay? But it, it's, it's not where we need to put the chips, I think. Now, we can mention that in our presentations of the gospel, but I don't want to say Luke 24, 1 Corinthians 15, Acts 13 are somehow missing something because they've not included the sinless life of Christ. The chips are on the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, according to the scriptures. That doesn't minimize the sinless life of Christ, but I think... I think we've put too much of an emphasis on that in our gospel presentation. So we say things like, Christ lived the life you could not live, died the death you could not die. Perfectly true. We should say that. But that doesn't capture the whole story. Moreover, it's not where uh, the apostles put the emphasis. Um, I'll say to this point as well, uh, you have not preached the gospel if you don't include the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And people do that all the time. What's the gospel? Jesus died for you. No, it's not. Or it's, it's not less than that, but it's definitely more than that. Yeah, Nathan. I was just going to say, I think um, the, the sinless life of Christ is, is contained in incarnation. Yeah. This is God yes. becoming man. Well said. And also, the, um, there, it's, so it's implied throughout. I think what yeah. you're saying, yeah. Curtis, yeah. how much do you emphasize... The imputation of Christ's righteousness in the gospel message. Um, And I was just going to ask you, would you, is it kind of like the doctrine of adoption? I mean, it's incredibly important, but when we're just talking about the essentials, Yes. that, you know, the thief on the cross Mm -hmm. understood he needed rescue. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I don't know that. He fully comprehended that he would receive the righteousness of Christ. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't understand, you know, this. what's going on on the cross now. This is the commercial view of the atonement and Christ is making propitiation. No, you don't need to understand those things exactly. He needed rescue, and he knew that this, this apparently was the Christ, and he could provide rescue for his soul and bear him safely to God. Remember me when you could... So I, I think we missed the mark when we front load the gospel with all this information about imputation and, and propitiation. And, you know, um, helpful to explain those things. Paul does that in certain places, but that's not the kernel of the gospel. In, in some cases, those are implications of the gospel. You know. Yes, Jerry. Um, Kurt, maybe if you're looking for a place for active, is active righteousness mm-hmm. in in the Christ yeah. point, yeah. it is coming to fulfill yeah. a person. That Absolutely. Yeah. Think yeah. about. All the things you referenced, the suffering yep. servant of Isaiah, or even the anointed one, there's mm-hmm. a sense of intrinsic holiness in yeah. that idea yeah. by itself. Yeah. So um, if he is coming to fulfill all these things, that these, you have this picture of this perfect one who would finally bring in the kingdom of God, who would be the one whom God and the nations are all waiting yeah. for, there is a sense of... Absolutely. And I think, 
I'm sure I'm getting one or both of these texts wrong. I think it's Hebrews 2 that references Psalm 27 about Jesus. He says, Behold, it is written to me in the book, I delight to do your will. Oh, my God. But this idea that this is the one who will consistently follow the will of God and perfectly please uh, the Lord. Yes? Uh, if you're saying he was raised according to the scriptures, yeah. um, and that's a part of the apostolic message, mm-hmm. what Old Testament passages would there be in mind? Yeah. Uh, there would be. There would be. Yeah, you, know, you think of Isaiah fifty-three. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering. I'm blanking on yeah. the resurrection. There would be many. Um, some more plain than others. Certainly, Paul makes reference to Psalm 16 in Acts 13. He says, "You will not let your holy one see corruption." The, that's the anointed one, according to Jared's comment. And he argues that if, if that was about that, sure, certainly can't be about David. He saw corruption, but he won't let his holy one see corruption. And Christ is that that promised one to come. Other passages we can definitely um, go to. We are going to have a class in the fall on hermeneutics that's going to take up, or Bible interpretation that's going to take up this exact point. And so I'm going to punt on that for the sake of time. Super important question, but there there would be numbers of texts that would get at that idea of resurrection. But we can certainly say 1 Corinthians 15, you know, it's an essential part of our message. Absolutely. I, I, I contend if you have not included the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've not preached the gospel. You've preached something less. Yeah. A discussion here too is kind of a bigger picture of the perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king. It's kind of a yeah. summary of oh, all yeah. of this. As you see the mm-hmm. fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of all of the uh, ordinances. Oh yeah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's an unintelligible statement without the sacrificial system. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's, that's an excellent point. I mean, I heard Sinclair Ferguson say this recently that that that. He was arguing that if, if you were uh, a pious Jew in the Old Testament, not for a second did you think by performing this ritual of sacrificing this lamb that this was the end-all, be-all. Yes. You knew this is symbolism, this is pointing to some sacrifice that's to come, that, that, will, that will be performed in some sort of final sense. They didn't know the degree of detail that we know now as New Covenant believers looking back on the events. But I, I tend to agree with him, and lots of Old Testament scholars would agree with him that Clearly, this is all pointing ahead to some coming consummation, some sort of redemption, some sort of sacrifice, some sort of full climax and realization of these, of these things. That's a fantastic point. And there is a strong case to be made. Perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king. Those things are borne out, certainly in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, this idea, I was going to state this as well, the idea of these things being according to the Scriptures... Again, something maybe we don't emphasize enough. I was just, um, there's a, a man I'm meeting with right now. We're going through the Gospel of John. He's not presently a believer. And um, as I started bringing out this point in particular, we've got to understand it's not just that Jesus was born and that he died, that he rose. All these things were prophesied hundreds of years prior. You know? well, it, was, it was sort of an alarming fact to him to go back in the Old Testament to see how these statements um, were vindicated in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, it was like a big, big deal. And um, I think that's one of the strongest, if you're looking for an apologetic argument for the Christian faith and for the gospel, uh, I think we need, to, we need to work more at this, demonstrating how it is that Jesus Christ died and rose according to the scriptures. And then, of course, this idea of the summons. The gospel is not the response, but it's the summons to a response. Okay, for the sake of time, I'm going to press past these points here. So I want to look at some of these popular paradigms that are included on your handout. These are paradigms for sharing this basic gospel message. Okay? 
One that's very commonly used is God, man, Christ's response. Anyone know the origins of that? It might have been a campus ministry, maybe campus crusade. Not sure. Probably have that wrong. But God, man, Christ's response. Again, getting at some of these points here. It's about what God has done. It's about his initiative. Uh, It's about who God is. Talk about creation if you want, that he's the creator God, created all things. Uh, That he is the uh, one uh, that sinful creatures have rebelled against. Talk about God. Uh, You talk about man, who man is, and his sin nature, subordinate to God and a rebel against God. Certainly Christ, and that would get at so much of this material here. And then response. And I'll just emphasize again, just to kind of dial it in, that the gospel is not the response. It's the summons to response. Then a paradigm, I don't use this paradigm as much to explain the gospel, because technically it's not the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's more of a a whole storyline of the Bible paradigm. Okay, so I think you can preach the gospel without really saying much at all about creation. You can assume it. You can leave it out. It's not the end of the world. The gospel doesn't actually include a message about creation. But if you're telling the whole message of the scriptures, I think this paradigm is really helpful. There was creation, and there was the fall. God prepared a way of redemption through Jesus Christ. And then you have consummation that that at the end of all things, Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to receive his people into eternal paradise and to, of course, judge the wicked. And then I have J.I. Packer's summary from his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, Ben taught an excellent class several weeks ago, basically riffing on that book by Packer. Um, I don't know that there's any book other than Max Stiles' book that we're using for this class that I would more highly recommend on the subject of evangelism than Packer's book. This is how he describes the gospel. It's along the lines of God, man, and Christ's response. He says, the gospel is a message about God. It's a message about sin. It's a message about Christ. And he's the one who really coined this phrase. It's a summons to repentance and faith. Just like I've said, I don't think you can preach the gospel aright if you don't include the fact of the resurrection. You have not preached the gospel aright if you don't include this summons. Now there's a call to you to come to him, to repent of your turning from your sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a call, it's an invitation. We see Jesus doing this again and again, uh, calling people to himself, come to me all you labor and are heavy laden. John 7, come, all you who thirst, uh, come to me and, and live. So those are some of the popular paradigms that I think we can use that are helpful to just have in our minds as we're seeking to convey the gospel, sort of an outline of the gospel message. Any questions about those paradigms or anything we've talked about at this point? I think we're a little early. Yeah, we've got about five minutes here, and uh, I've come to the end of my notes. What questions do you have? Debbie? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say enough is conveyed there. So I think, just like John 3.16 doesn't get into the whole according to the scriptures element. That, that, that goes back to the beginning of the class. I mean, can we describe the gospel in one short sentence? You know, And the Bible does this again and again. Then there's some passages we could fill it out. Maybe it's five or six verses. And then, I didn't mention this, but I mean, hopefully, if you have the opportunity, you can look at an entire gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Romans more or less is one prolonged argument on what the gospel is 
and um, it gets into the implications uh, for sure. But um, I don't think, like when we look at John 3.16, we shouldn't say, well, that's not the gospel. We should know that's the essence of the gospel. There's more we could say, but, but that, is, that is more or less the essence. But when we have opportunity, we should say more of these things. And that would, I think, bear true in the case of the Philippian jailer. Yeah. I was just going to comment as well. One, one thing that um, we don't necessarily have to do in encounter passage like that is assume that that's all that was said. Yes, absolutely. Because, um, it, I mean, it, in that context, the, those men were preaching to everybody. Yes. And so it's not surprising if the guy had been hearing them and they were talking the whole time. And then all this stuff happens that night. And then he's like, what do I do? Yeah, and yeah. When they say that to him, he knows what that means because they've already told him. Yeah. And, and you, the reader, are supposed to read these books in their entirety. So the assumption, Luke, Luke is building an argument and acts. And at different points, he emphasizes different elements of the gospel. Certainly in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in 1 Corinthians. Um, he's capturing different elements at different times, showing you different scenes. But there's an overall argument that's constructed in these particular books. So they're not meant to be read in isolation from other texts. So I assume Luke is saying, look, if, if, if you've been tracking with me up to this point, you know Acts 2 and Acts 3, where Peter preaches the gospel in a great deal of fullness. Yeah. Other questions? Well, even, even that, it's not necessarily everything that is said in those sermons. Yeah, fact, exactly. It, it, it takes 90 seconds to read Peter's sermon. Yeah. So Luke's capturing the, the yeah. essential elements in that context. Yes, yes. Later when you see, you see Paul... Uh, evangelized Gentiles, he's emphasizing things like creation, this yeah. is the creator, yep. things that he wouldn't emphasize to Jews, but doesn't yeah. say he's much about the resurrection even. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's supposed to be read in context. Yeah, and it, a very fruitful study is to, is to look at the preaching in Acts. Go ahead and just extract everywhere where the apostles are preaching. And then compare. It's, it's very fascinating to see in different contexts where different things were emphasized. There's diff- definitely in the Apostle Paul a difference in the way he addresses Jews who had the Old Testament scriptures and um, you know, those, those who did not. Paul and Mars Hill, for example. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yes, Kurt. Um, there are people that believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that don't believe in the Christ that we believe in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do I mean... Uh, you know, there's more an example would be Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. They believe he's the brother. Yeah. Or, you know, he's a created being. So they don't. So the incarnation is significantly important to the gospel. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and understanding who Christ actually. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to make John, it too John, difficult. No, absolutely no. Well, I, I think what's beautiful about understanding this is, first of all, it opens us up to unity with a very broad group of people who we again we're not together with them on other things. Right. Believing Anglicans, for example. Lots of things I'm not to get. And frankly, some believe in Catholics. Right. Okay? Even though many Catholics don't understand particular... El- there are some Catholics, I believe, who believe this message just like I do. And maybe they are unfamiliar with what's taught, an official dogma or something like that. There's a great deal of unity found in this, but nonetheless, it does exclude vast numbers of people. If you don't believe in the... Inc- I mean, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may... That's the gospel. If you miss that, you don't have it. Right. Yeah. Nathan. I'm just thinking about these things for upcoming class on children, mm-hmm. but to get to Kurt's point, there is a context here. Um, if you think about the simplicity of the gospel message, what's actually required, it's helpful to think it's helpful to me to think about what would a child have to understand in order to be saved. We would find mm-hmm. that there are many, many children in the kingdom. 
one of the one of the advantages is like you're saying, Kurt, um, we don't have the accumulation of misunderstanding and heresy that we would have with an adult that you'd have to really dig into. When we say right. Christ to a child, they have they have no reason to believe that's a created being. I mean, they, they believe and trust. Mm. So I just think mm-hmm. thinking through that, that yeah. um, uh, it's just one of the great advantages to evangelizing uh, children yeah, yeah. is that they have not accumulated yeah. uh, all those misunderstandings. Yeah, and yeah. Well, conclusion, let me say this. I know I missed a few questions, but for the sake of time, I uh, can't address them here, but feel free to come to me after the class. Um, people are saved, made right with God, justified before God, uh, by believing this gospel and um, particularly putting their trust in the Christ of this gospel. Let me just encourage you I just think it's one of the, just the big, big points, that the gospel is this summons. We don't just need to defend the fact that Jesus died and rose. And we need to express that factual information. But beyond that, this has to do with individual people and their personal sins and offenses against God and Jesus' willingness to be Lord and Savior to them if they would come to him. That's the, that's the, the good news of the gospel. If you leave that summons out, I'm condemned. But beyond that, these things are true. And then he invites me in. He draws me to himself. He wants to be my savior and do something with my sin. This is something I'll ask a lot as, as I hear gospel presentations in the members class. But what does Jesus' death have to do with your sin? You know, Jesus is, can be your savior. And if you come to him and put your trust in him, he will be your Lord, he will be your savior, and he'll bear you safely to God. Troy, why don't you close us out? What's your thought? Alex, our Lord. Our precious Lord mm-hmm. promised us an aid and a help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, uh, us children or simple people don't have a, a grasp on a lot of intellectual stuff. So mm-hmm. we have to depend on someone else. Yes. You know, yes. That's, that's the Holy Spirit to guide and help us to understand and even help us believe. Mm. Amen. And so, I, I, you know, I just wanted to add that. I think that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. He did make a way. Yeah. Amen. Mark, go ahead. And the verse for that is, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I said unto you. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, our time is gone. Let me close this in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel and uh, for your gracious invitation of sinners like us to come uh, to. Uh, believe, repenting and forsaking our sins and finding our soul's delight and satisfaction in Christ who is a savior for sinners. We thank you that it is the gospel by which those of us who are your children have been saved. And it's that gospel that we proclaim earnestly desiring and seeking that more would come to believe this message and be found in Jesus Christ. May we be found all of our days standing upon this message and proclaiming this message, and defending this message, and teaching it to our children, and to those around us, and and relating to one another according to this gospel, and living in light of it. Help us to flesh out the implications of the gospel in our daily lives. But Lord, give each one of us here in this room daily trust and belief in this gospel message, by which we have been saved, and are being saved, and will finally be saved on the last day. Bless us now as we go to worship you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.